Hey, welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast, one of the many places that we love to declare Jesus. We see you and your life living a life of resilient faith for all of your days, and we believe that listening to this message is going to be part of strengthening your faith journey. Enjoy the message. Today we are kicking off a brand new series. Today we're starting a series that we're simply calling Declare It. I think that this series is really the core and the centrality of what it is to be a believer. It's a series we're going to be in for the next about six weeks, and it's a series that will happen in service and in your life groups. We're going to talk about half of what we're talking about when we come here together, and then the second half of each week's message is going to happen inside of your group. So if you're not in a group, you're only getting half of what we're doing over the next six weeks because we are going to lean into this central idea that we are those who have been called to declare the good news that Jesus has come, that Jesus came for every person, that the life of a believer is available to anyone who believes. This is the central thing that I think we have. There are many things that believers are called to declare. There are many things that are a part of the life of a believer. There are many things that it means to be part of the life of a believer. But the central thing that we are called to speak about, that we are called to declare is the good news of who Jesus is, the good news that he came to us, that he laid down his life for us. And though we couldn't get to him through his eternal sacrifice, all who believe now have access back into heaven through the person of Jesus. This is the central thing. And it is my conviction that though we have many things to talk about and many things we could talk about and many things that it probably matters that we talk about, that we spend too much time talking about the secondary and the tertiary things of our faith and we would do better to focus in on our core message. Our core message is that we have good news, that Jesus came to us. There's a book, a, a scripture in the book of Romans where Paul is quoting the words of Isaiah and he says, and how lovely are they? How beautiful are those who bring the good news? How beautiful are the feet of these who preach the gospel of the good news? You can find it in Romans 10 and 15. When you start coming, people should say, how good is it that they have arrived? Those who come and bring the good news. And over these next several weeks, I believe God is going to stir in us a fresh passion for being those who declare the good news of the gospel as well as equip us in how to declare the good news of the gospel. That between now and the end of this series, you will feel invigorated and empowered in a new way to be someone who knows how to declare it, that Jesus is here for every believer. We're going to start off today talking about the first layer of how we declare it. You can turn in your Bibles, if you want, to the book of Genesis. I was thinking over this last week, I am a lover of 
stories. I love to read fiction and I love to watch movies. And the thing that can be obnoxious about me sometimes is I'm not just intaking the story, I'm also dissecting the way that they built the story and the way that they're telling the story and how they're introducing new characters. Phil hates watching shows with me sometimes because we'll come to one of those episodes and I'll be like, ooh, this is the backstory episode. We're getting all the backstory on the character. They must be getting ready to develop this character more in the next episode. That's why they're telling us where, and he's like, can we just enjoy the show? And I'm like, I need to take it in. And one of the most interesting things that you can do in a story is, of course, foreshadowing. You can foreshadow where something is going and give a glimpse of, I'm reading a story right now, and I was reading part of it the other day, and the author just slides in this one line, and I went, because now I think I know where they're going because they've given me a foreshadow of where, a hint about where this story is heading. But did you know there's something that's the opposite of a foreshadow as well? It's called, you guys are finding out how nerdy I truly am. There's something that's the opposite of a foreshadow as well. And the opposite of a foreshadow is called a post Diction. A post-diction is when you're in a story, and in the story, something happens in the story that changes the way that you see the rest of the story. All of the sudden, you find out something about a character, or you find out something about a moment, and it adjusts the meaning of everything that's happened before that. It's when you're watching The Sixth Sense, and you find out that the boy's been dead the whole time. If you have not seen the movie yet, you have had 25 years, okay? (laughs) You find out the kid is dead, and all of a sudden you're like, (gasps) everything that has happened before this moment means something. It's when you find out that Tyler Durden is not a secondary character in the movie. He is the alter ego of Jack throughout the whole, (gasps) and you have to go back, and you want to re-watch the whole movie because you realize that there is different meaning to everything that has happened before this moment because I just found out a brand new piece of information. The incarnation of Jesus coming into the earth is a post-diction moment in human history where you realize that everything that happened before this takes on a totally different meaning. Everything that happened, and because the beauty of the post-diction moment is that you realize that the author knew exactly where they were going from the beginning of the story, and they were telling a story that was different than the story that you assumed that they were telling. For us to understand this good news that we have, we have to be able to understand that everything from the beginning of the story should be understood through the lens of the reality that Jesus came and there are hints and there are clues that we will miss if we forget that we are reading the story with the revelation of who Jesus is. He's there all the way from the top of the story and the author knew where he was going. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. This is after we have just seen our two different narratives about the creation story and how God created the heavens and the earth. 
And now, and now it starts like this. In Genesis 3, starting in verse 1, it says, And now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired and to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. This is where we first see the idea that sin has entered the world. It is the first picture of human beings hearing what God says and choosing to do the opposite of what God told them to do. Eve knows what God said but decides to do something different instead. This, my friends, is a predictable outcome. If you are reading along in this story, and if you know anything about people and how we people along, you know, you hear God say to them, you can eat of any of the trees of the garden, but that one leave alone. And you're like, they're getting ready to go eat from that tree, God. I know something about, there are predictable outcomes that we come across in life. This is not a surprise plot twist in the story that somewhere there are certain things that you've just lived long enough and you've had enough life that you know this is how this is going because I am able to predict based on the other pieces of information that I have about life. Phil and I went to brunch on over this weekend. Just the two of us, we went out, we're sitting at brunch. We'd gone and done a workout, decided to go get some brunch and catch up on our week together. We sit down, the server comes, and Phil says, I bet you can't guess what I'm going to order. And I said, please. I have been married to you for almost 12 years now. You are going to order this. You want your eggs done like this. This is what you're going to get on the side. And then you want this to drink with it, and you're going to need extra of this. And he was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want. Can you bring that? This is a predictable outcome because I've been with you long enough that I have observed your patterns and your habits and your behaviors. If you have observed human beings long enough, it is not a surprise to you that Adam and Eve find themselves eating from this tree because there is something about the human condition that find ourselves time and time again in a position where we want to take hold of the thing that God told us to leave alone. It is a predictable outcome that Adam and Eve would choose their own desire and their own curiosity over the thing that God told them to leave 
alone. And Eve finds herself at the tree and she finds the serpent talking to her. And the predictable outcome is that she is going to eat from the tree. But also part of the predictable outcome of human beings is that in a few short lines and verses, they have added upon what God has actually said. We have a way of hearing what God says and adding to what God said to make it more. Look at what I mean. Genesis 2 and 17, this is what Genesis 2 and 17 says. Genesis 2 and 17, this is God speaking to Adam, and he says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. Clear. Next verse, let's look at what, Ad, or what Eve says back to the serpent. She says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of, in the garden. That's tracking. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Yep, that's tracking. Neither shall you touch it. What? Lest you die. When did God say anything about touching it? God didn't say anything about touching it. God said, don't eat of it. But somehow, between 2.17 and 3.3, Adam and Eve have added an additional layer on top of what God said, and not only added an additional layer on top of what God said, added God's name on top of what God said, and said, God also said, don't touch it. Now, this may seem innocent enough. They said they're not supposed to eat it, so sure, let's also not touch it. That will help keep us from eating eating it, if we add an additional layer, this is the additional predictable outcomes of humans because when Jesus comes, he spends a good portion of his time talking to the religious elite who have added additional things on top of what God said. God gives them rules to obey him and a law to be in right standing with him. And they have more than tripled the laws and the rules and created what is referred to as the fence laws around the actual laws to keep you out. And it seems like it's a good idea. If I don't want you to jump off the cliff, I create a fence that's five feet back from the cliff, and then you can never. But the thing is that it also creates barriers from people encountering God. It misrepresents the person of who God is, and it speaks to things like they are holy when they are not holy. Maybe they're just good advice, but it is the predictable outcome of the human experience that we think we get to add on top of what God said God says don't forget Sunday or don't forget the public gathering treat it as holy check we say it has to look like this it has to be at this time you can't wear a hat in here that makes it unholy what when did God say that he didn't We say you have to wear this kind of clothing. You have to come at this time. It has to sound like this. It has to look like this. God said, I didn't say any of that. I said, remember the gathering. I said, keep coming together. I said, remember my day and treat it as holy. We add all of these other things. God says, hey, this is what... This is what I want sexual intimacy to look like in my created order. In my created order, if you're not married, don't have any of it. If you're married... Only husbands and wives having it together, nobody else. 
We go, what that means is when you go to youth camp, you have to wear a jumbo size t-shirt and everybody needs to use the ruler rule and not be within a full foot of each other. I'm not saying these are bad advice. I'm saying we say this makes it holy when it's not what God said. And we add layers on top of what God said. And then here's what happens is the serpent comes along and says, why don't you just try it? And Eve's in her point of indecision and she reaches out and she takes hold of the fruit from the tree. And when she takes hold of the fruit from the tree, she doesn't die because it turns out this was not God's ordinance. And it makes her think maybe it won't be so bad after all. And predictably... Eve finds herself all the way in the place that God never intended her to be because the false barrier that was created for her led her to believe that it was okay to cross the real thing. It is a predictable outcome that when we misrepresent who God is, it does not lead people into better relationship with him, but more broken relationship with him. And so Adam and Eve find themselves in the place of temptation and they reach out to take from the tree because their temptation is always in the place of control. It is always in the place of authority. Did God really say that to you? The issue of temptation is always around the question and who has the right to say that to you? Is the right for ruling your life in the mouth of God or in your own decision? And Adam and Eve, like all of us, decide that the right for ruling their own life is not in the ordinances that God has put out for them, but in the thing that they have decided to reach out and take hold of. And they misinterpret what it is to be like God. Because the serpent says to them, You will be like God. And he says being like God has to do with your knowledge and your control. Your knowledge and your control. But God interprets being like God as relationship and communion. Relationship and communing together. We misinterpret what it is to be like God and think I would be like God if I had all control and all knowledge and all power. And God says that was not what it means to be like me. When I created you and I said I made you in my image and in my likeness, it was because you also had the ability, unlike any of the rest of creation, to come and commune with me and they reach out and they take hold of the tree and they eat of its fruit and all of the sudden they find themselves in a position they have never been in before they find themselves filled with shame they are filled with shame and they run into hiding. It's an interesting point in the story because materially nothing is different about their position. 
They are still a man and a woman placed in a garden. They are still rulers over this garden. They are still together in the garden. They are still walking and talking, and they have not perished in the way that they imagined the perishing would happen. They are everything about their condition is the same except for suddenly shame has entered into their life. Suddenly it says they feel vulnerable for the very first time. They have lived their life without the feeling of being exposed, without the feeling of being vulnerable before others. They have lived their entire life up to this moment feeling comfortable and confident in the person and the body and the way that God has made them. And suddenly shame enters into the story and they do what we all do. They run to creation instead of to the creator to begin to fashion something together to cover themselves. It says they go to leaves and to bushes and they fashion something together and then they hide behind the bush. It is probably the very first picture that we have of a pantheistic worldview that says, what if I trusted in the thing that was created because it is closer to me and it is more tangible to me and I understand it a little bit better and I can wrap my hand around it more closely. What if I turn to creation to be the source to cover my shame and to hide me and all of my shortcomings rather than running to the creator and Adam and Eve find themselves hiding behind leaves and bushes and my question for you today is when shame comes to your door and when you know that you have made a decision that is outside of the will of God what is it that you run to what is it that you reach for to cover the place where you feel inadequate to cover the place where you feel vulnerable? Is it your tendency to lie and to say that things are not as they are? To present something as if it is more together than it is? Is it your tendency to posture yourself and say that your work is why everything is working in your life? Is it your tendency to put out the picture of an all-together family that's doing well and has it together? Is it your propensity to lean into your creative endeavors and act like because I can create these things, everything is fine in my life, but they are leaves and they are figs and they are bushes that we are reaching for because we have a feeling and a sense of control over them rather than running to the creator and Adam and Eve just like all of us do not miss this part in the beginning of the story it is a predictable outcome that they went to that tree and they ate from that tree and they reached for something they could feel and understand and was close to them to cover themselves because it is part of the human condition. Adam and Eve are not just two people who messed up a long time ago. They are also the picture of every single one of us. 
Each and every one of us has the human propensity to reach out and take hold of what is my own desire and what is within my own reach and my own grasp and to tell myself that my way is better than his way. The picture of Adam and Eve in the garden is the recurring picture of every human amongst time and throughout all generations who have the propensity for going after what is within their reach. You and I would have done exactly the same thing. And the reason I know we would have is because we do. In our day-to-day lives, in our week-to-week moments, we have things that God says, leave that alone. That's not for you. But we tell ourselves, I just need to try it one time. I just... I just need to reach out and taste what that is. And we reach out and then like Adam and Eve, shame comes in. And instead of running to our creator, we run to creation and we make situations more complicated than they even were to begin with because we're trying to cover up the thing that happened. And it continues in Genesis 3 and 8 with Adam and Eve and their flimsy clothing that they've made hiding behind a bush And Genesis 3, starting in verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, Where are you? Now, a key factor to remember anytime you are reading scripture is that God is never asking a question because he does not know the answer to that question. He is asking a question because he is giving you the opportunity to come forth with the truth of what is happening. Anyone who is a parent of more than one child has had this situation in your life where you come and you say to them, can you explain to me what happened here? You are not asking the question, can you explain to me what happened here? Because it is not clear that someone took all of the markers and drew a mural on the wall during nap time. You are asking the question, can you explain to me what happened here? Because you are giving your child the opportunity to confess, to come up with a truthful response into what happened here. This is God's opportunity to Adam and Eve to come out with it and say, okay, this is what happened doesn't exactly go down like that and I don't want to skip over and jump over this moment even in many of the commentaries that are read this portion of the scripture it simply jumped over to the next portion of the scripture because in just a moment we're going to talk about what are the consequences of the decisions that Adam and Eve made because there are consequences to decisions when we live and we act and we work outside of God's intended will for our life but it seems like everybody wants to jump from Adam and Eve messed up to the fact that there are consequences to what Adam and Eve happened but there are these two verses right here before that happened where it says and God came to them in the cool of the day and he said to them where are you 
An important thing to know about much of Old Testament scripture and certainly about the book of Genesis is that it is intended to be meditation literature. It means that it is intended to be scripture that you don't just rush through and read through one time, but that you sit on, that you think about, that you read it over and over again, and you ask questions of it. It is not a nervous position for people to ask questions of Scripture. It is the intended way that it was written to cause us to have questions that cause us to probe at what is happening here. And one day I was sitting and I was reading and I was thinking on this narrative that we get in Genesis 3. And the question occurred to me, why did God even come? He builds this beautiful garden and he places Adam and Eve in the garden and he tells them, all of this is yours except for that one tree over there. Be fruitful, multiply, cultivate this garden. And Adam and Eve go and do expressly what God has told them not to do. There is no confusion about it. That is clear. They didn't, oops, accidentally, I thought it was that tree, but it was this tree, and stumble into their sin moment. They thoughtfully said, God said, don't touch it. I'm going to try it anyway, and intentionally went against what God had told them to do. Now, I'm not quite as gracious as God. If that was me, I'd be like, fine. Live with your shame. I'm going to make another garden somewhere else. I'll make a whole other planet. I'm God. All I have to do is speak, and it comes into existence. I would have ghosted them so hard they would have never heard from me again. <laughs> Deal with it. But I am not God. Thank the Lord that God is God. And God comes to the garden to find Adam and Eve, knowing what they've done, knowing they are filled with shame, knowing he has to reveal this pain that they find themselves. Do not miss this moment. They find themselves knowing they have done exactly what God told them not to do. And they find themselves trying to cover their shame in things that they only know how to fashion, hunched back behind a bush. And while they think it's all over now, certainly God has come to smite us with thunderbolts and end it all for us. God comes to them in the midst of it and he says I came here to find you Adam I came here to find you Eve I know exactly what you did and I could have left you in it and I could have moved on from it and I could have let the shame overcome you and I could have let you keep playing with those leaves acting like that's doing something but I decided to come for you I decided that I wasn't willing to leave you in your shame I decided that I wasn't willing to leave you in your pain you need to know about me that I'm the kind of God that even though you moved against the thing that I said to you and even though you went in the exact opposite direction even though you went out and you took hold of the thing that I told you to leave alone I was not willing to sit back and watch this thing play out I still had to come for you God comes for them Still in the midst of the shame and in the midst of the in the midst of your shame and in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your terrible decision that has filled you with everything that you thought was.
was lost and broken and wrong with your life in the middle of trying to hide behind bushes and fashion together leaves, God came for you still. He came for them. Don't jump over these two verses. They're not just a pathway to get you to the next part. They are a central component of the message of the character of who God is. They are central to the thing that we declare that though we were in shame and though we were broken and though I messed it all up and though I knew I did exactly what I wasn't supposed to be, though all of that was true and I found myself in the worst position thinking, why did I do this and how did I do this? The thing that we have to to know about God part of the good news that we have is that God still comes still comes to us in the midst of all of it God still comes to them and he comes to them and he says where are you come out here and they reveal what has happened and again, they do what all of us do. Adam's like, it was Eve, and Eve's like, it was that snake. And everybody's like, moving the buck along. And we think, I think we misinterpret what God is doing. Like he's trying to embarrass them or he's trying to increase their shame. But when you understand that God is the only one with the capacity to right this wrong, you understand that when God comes to them and says, hey, we have to talk about what just happened, he is revealing the brokenness in their life so that he can deal with the brokenness in their life. We hide our shame from God when we skip over that mystery middle part and think the only reason he's coming is to dole out punishments, but God is coming because he still desires relationship with them. Despite what they've done, he still wants to be with them. And he reveals what's happening so that he can restore what has, ha what has been lost. And he talks to Adam and he says, Adam, the ground is going to put forth thorns for you now, and there's thistles. There is consequence to the decision that you have made. Things cannot be like they were before this moment. And there will be thorns, and there will be thistles, and it will not be easy like it was before. It will be the sweat of your brow that brings forth fruit from the ground. And he speaks to Eve, and he says, Eve, I am going to multiply the pain that there is in childbirth. There will be an increase in the pain that there is in childbirth because of what has happened, and there will be friction in your relationship with your husband now because of what has happened. He speaks to both of them, and he tells them, it's the place of your fruitfulness that has been afflicted by the decision that you made. And it's ironic because in reaching out and grabbing from the tree, I can only assume that Adam and Eve thought that they would be increasing the fruit that was available to their life. But instead of increasing it when they went to take a hold of it from their own hand and abiding by the thing that God had given them as a direction, they now have caused affliction to come into their place of fruitfulness. And then he talks to the serpent, and he says to the serpent, you're going to eat the dust, and you're going to be the worst of all of the animals. 
And then check this out in verse 3 and 15. In verse 3 and 15, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Read it one more time, because it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Heal. If you like fancy words, this is called the pro-evangelium. It is the first time that we hear the good news in all of Scripture. If you don't mind fancy words and you just want plain words, it is the first good news. It is the first time that God speaks to the enemy and he speaks to the serpent and he says, I have a plan. I came for them with the intention of putting everything right. This is a predictable outcome that you would have come into this space and you would have come into this place and after a little while you weren't able to hold off anymore and you took hold of something that I told you to leave leave alone. But the also predictable outcome is that he is a God that still comes for them. He is a God that still desires to be in relationship with them. And he has a plan all the way from the beginning. He says, the good news is that I have someone who will come into the earth. And when that someone named Jesus comes into the earth, he's going to rewrite all of the wrong that has happened in this space and in this place. And it might seem like you bruised him, but I'm telling you, you're he's going to crush your head. He is going to put all of this back into right relationship because when Jesus came, he comes to restore everything that was lost because Adam and Eve are afflicted in the place of their fruitfulness and they're required to leave the garden because also in the garden is access to the tree of eternal life, a tree that causes them not to be just in their mortal bodies but have access to life eternal and all of that is broken and all of that is disrupted by the choice to take hold of something by their own hand and not take hold of the thing that God sold them and they leave the garden with a relationship with God that's been disrupted and with a relationship with each other that's been disrupted and with the relationship with the, our creation that's been disrupted and they no longer have access to life eternal because they've been removed from the place where life eternal is but God says don't worry about it because I have someone who's coming and when he comes in flesh and blood and he lays down as the very first eternal sacrifice he's coming so that you can repair your relationship with God and be put back in right relationship with him he's coming so that your relationship with one another can be restored and can be back as it was intended to be he's coming so that your relationship as rulers of creation can be restored and put back in its right place and he's coming so that you have access to life eternal once again that you no longer have to perish but all who believe in him should have eternal life God had a plan all the way from the beginning he didn't add Jesus to the script later on when you look back and realize that he's the postdiction of everything that happened before him that he was there at the beginning of creation they walk out of the garden says God makes a sacrifice actually just before they leave the garden he says God makes a sacrifice 
and he clothes them not in leaves, not in bushes, but he clothes them in skin, meaning God makes the very first sacrifice recorded in scripture. There will be future sacrifices made by other people, but the very first sacrifice is made by God, which is a reminder to us that the sacrifice that puts us back in restored relationship is not the sacrifice that comes from our own hands. It's the sacrifice that God makes on our behalf to cover us from our shame, to heal us from our pain, to cover us from our iniquity, to clothe us before he sends us out. It is a picture to us of what Jesus will do and say, it's not your sacrifice that made this happen. It's my sacrifice. Part of what we have to declare is a message that is distinctly different because of the person of Jesus who says it is not what you do for me that makes you whole. It is what I do for you that makes you whole again. Every single one of us would have chosen our own desires over his. Every single one of us would have been fallen and had a disrupted relationship. And every single one of us needs access back to redemption through the person of Jesus who comes to heal and restore what was disrupted in the garden. This is the good news that we have to declare. Declare that he came for us still. That God came for me. That God came for you. That he saw you in your shame. And he didn't move on, but he came 